So um, just a quick review. Uh, in Isaiah 58, um, the Lord had talked about how you know, they're fasting, but they're still following their own pleasures. Uh, so you know, the Lord is displeased with their fast, and then he makes that statement, is this not the fast I choose uh, you know, to loose the bonds of injustice? Uh, then your ruins of your city and your life and your circumstances will re, you know, be rebuilt, is what the Lord promised. So when you come to 59, verse 1, we read, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from the Lord, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue has muttered perversity. Now, the concept, the doctrine that's built in here, when someone, uh, in this case, the nation of Israel, uh, accuses God of not intervening, not working, not being there, not you know, caring for his children, those that would cry out to him. The answer comes here that no, the problem doesn't lie with God. The problem lies with the person who's in sin. Your iniquities have separated you from your God. Now, we need to be very clear because, you know, the nation of Israel is falling into this terrible circumstance and will eventually result in their captivity. And in this pain that they're going through and calling out to God and not receiving answer, this answer comes. But there are situations such as Job, where here's a man who's not in sin and yet suffering, still going through terrible things. So it's important that we understand that the two things are very clearly taught in the scripture. We look at Job, and in the end, why is God letting a righteous man go through terrible things? Uh, to refine him. That's the summary of Job's life, is that he all of this is happening, that he would be refined as gold. There, there's an example that's in Job. There's a righteousness that's in Job. There's something we need to understand. The, the contrast to that is what we're reading here. You know, what we see the scripture saying about God will not be mocked. What you sow, you're going to reap. You know, sin has a very profound effect upon us. If if we are living in sin, we can't act like, why is this happening to me? You know, why is God allowing? It's, it's not a matter that God would very much like to protect us from those circumstances by keeping us out of that type of behavior. When we walk into it, it's actually a very gracious thing that God allows for the trouble to come. When it hurts, we might not want to participate in it. This is something that's been taught very clearly as far as the prodigal son goes. Pain is one of the biggest things that drives him back home. You know, the, the pain, the embarrassment, and the want of his circumstance cause him to say, this is ridiculous. I need to go back to my parents. You know, this 
situation with a lot of parents is to want to intervene. You know, in our situation, as we experience the pain, we want somebody to just take the pain away. The pain is there designed to protect us, to keep us where we need to be. Yeah, confine us, confine us in that which is good. You know, yes, restrict us away from that which is bad. In the beginning, in Genesis 3, as Satan comes to tempt Eve, he implies, you know, God has put these restrictions on you, and it's to keep you down. It's to keep you away from something that's good and enjoyable. If, if you would eat of the tree, you would be like God. And it's the best thing she's ever experienced. God coming in the cool of the... I get to be like God. I just have to eat of that tree. You know, these things that God has you know, put the guidelines and parameters around and said, stay away from this as we venture out from underneath his protection into the pain and sorrow of punishment and you know all that the results of iniquities produce, then it does feel like God's not listening. We've separated ourselves from him. We've put ourselves in a place where there's not that freedom of fellowship anymore. The damage is very obvious. Now, in verse 4, he says, No one calls for justice, nor does any plead for truth. They trust in empty words and speak lies. They conceive evil and bring forth iniquity. They hatch viper's eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats of their eggs dies, and from that which is crushed a viper breaks out. You know, this sort of illustration that's being put forward by the Lord through the prophet here, they, the comparison of, you know, words and behavior of substance, you know, justice, truth, contrasted with empty words and lies. So you've got that contrast. Then the illustration of, you know, the hatching of viper's eggs, the, the venomous spider seems to be what's being implied. The spider's web, you know, this we often say today, oh, what a tangled web we leave, you know, weave. This this idea of when we're in iniquity, when we're not following the Lord, you know, that which is hid in his face, it's this idea of falsehood and emptiness. And in the end, that's venom. You could summarize all of that uh, as, you know, sort of speaking of poison or venom eats their eggs dies, you know, you crush the eggs. What emerges when things burst open, uh, you know, vipers break out is what comes out of the plans and the things that they're hatching and developing. God is saying when you live this way, in the sin, in the iniquity, separated from me, then all your plants produce poisonous things. Oh, this is going to be great. We're going to A, B, C, and then what's the end result? Why did it turn out so badly? Because of the sin and the iniquity. It poisoned the whole process. Everything that you were involved in was tainted as a result. You know, he's. this is a very helpful passage of Scripture in regard to the struggle we have as believers and how you know we live in our flesh, so we're going to have to contend 
with sinfulness. For the rest of our lives, we're going to be combating our very flesh in the directions that it wants to go. Now, when we find ourselves in places that feel like this, it's time to actually examine what's going on. What's, where is my heart? Where is my relationship with the Lord? And the clarity is right here. The diagnosis is difficult to take. Verse 6, their webs will not become garments, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, and the act of violence is in their hands. You know, like, who would ever want to have a, you know, a garment of cobwebs? You know, who would ever want to wear you know, these terrible things that are being described? It's more that they don't view them that way at all. It's that, oh, we're, you know, we're working out these wonderful plans to benefit ourselves and our circumstance, and we're going to prosper in it. And the Lord is saying, you know, basically, hey, you know, you think you're wearing nice clothes, but it's spider webs. You, you know, you, you have, you've clothed yourself, wrapped yourself in detestable things. But what's actually in your hand is violence. Their feet run to evil. They make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. A wasting and destruction are in their paths. The way of peace they have not known, and there is no justice in their ways. They have made themselves crooked paths or crooked paths. Whoever takes that way shall not know peace. And that's a very vivid description of, you know, certainly these people of the time, but boy, that's very accurate to our world today and all that is around us. You just you hear the next thing that is emerging in the news and we just kind of left baffled with how far we've gotten with how crooked things are, how twisted things are. Now, there's just countless examples. You can just let your own heart and mind pick up on a few. But just the politicians, the news, the laws that are being passed, the conflict that's in our culture, you know, transgenderism, the confusion. It's so interesting to me today reading just as sort of a description of the um, uh, general confusion of our culture uh, making changes to the laws uh, today that will allow for doctors to choose based upon their medical opinion or their moral opinion or their religious beliefs to not perform sex change operations. So the Obama administration had set forward a mandate that required doctors to do this and today that was reversed now in in the explanation of the reversal they actually say that if a doctor encounters someone with a body dysphoria then they can because of personal medical moral or religious reasons choose not to perform that surgery body dysphoria that's the thing. That's that's the punchline right there. People just blipped across that and don't even... What are we talking about? Body dysphoria. Well, body dysphoria is a very broad range of mental health issues. 
We just classified in the law all which is transgender as a mental health disorder, which it's been classified for decades as. The classification, body dysphoria, more specifically, gender dysphoria. Okay, Put it in focus for you. Anorexia is body dysphoria. The life-threateningly skinny girl still thinks she's fat and needs liposuction. <laughs> she's, you know, 98 pounds of near death's door and still thinks she's fat. There's something wrong in her mind where she perceives, or sometimes even he perceives, themselves to be something physically other than what they are. They're dangerously skinny and they think they're fat. They're female and think they're a male. They're a male and think they're a female. You've heard of this where it's rare, but there are people who think that they're supposed to have their left arm amputated. They, they, they aren't complete in, until this is taken off. That's a body dysphoria. And there's a deep mental scar somewhere that needs help. We don't need to mutilate their body, right? I mean, if the man walks in and says, I'm not going to be right until you take my left arm off, right? We're all going to sit down and try to help this poor soul understand there's something wrong with your thinking. But when it comes to a young boy or a young girl walking in and saying, I, I'm a boy, but I think I might be a girl. We go, okay, we'll mutilate you right now. And we start chopping them up. It's a sick society that we live in. You know, when you're reading about this twisting and this disorder, that this crooked path that's being, this is where humanity ends up, right? What's the scripture tell us? There's a way that seems right to a man. In the end, it leads to death. Not just as the individual, as the whole culture. The whole culture is going, this seems right to us. There's a portion of the culture that's still got its head screwed on straight because of the word of God that says, no, nope, not at all. You're not going the right direction. You're leading us down a crooked path. You're going to produce death within our culture. Now, the, 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 people that, the only people that had sense, the only people that had that correct message in their mouth, the prophets, the ones who are attuned to God's word. And there were more than just these, right? We hear the prophet saying, I'm the only one that's left. And God says, hey, I got a whole bunch of guys you don't know anything about. But the ones who have his message on their lips, they're the ones that the society should be listening to. The culture should be tuned into because they're tuned into God. And instead, what do we rely upon? The most common opinion. What are the most people saying? That's what we're going to go with. And the whole of our society's suffering. About it. Whoever takes that way shall not know peace, verse 8 says. Verse 9, therefore, justice is far from us, nor does righteousness overtake us. We look for light, but there is darkness for brightness, but we walk in blackness. We grope for the wall like the blind man, and we grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as at twilight. We are as dead men in desolate places. We all growl like bears. And that 
becomes significant and moans sadly like doves. We look for justice, but there is none for salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and as for our iniquities, we know them. In transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing from our God, right? And there's sort of another punchline, departing from our God. You know, abide in me, Jesus said. You know, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands afar off. For truth is fallen in the street and equity cannot enter. So truth fails. He who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Now, before we move on, there is, you know, this great description of, of a really desperate sort of picture that is painted of how this whole falsehood and all of this sin and everything is just sort of working together to create a terrible environment. You know, the more it goes on, the more we understand our own culture in this description. This pain or you know, groaning, you know, all growl like a bear and moan sadly like doves. The scripture describes that repeatedly, and it is something that I think um, worthy to just touch on, but also to help us realize where we're at spiritually. Romans chapter 8, verse 22 says, For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. This this moaning like a sad dove, yeah, the same idea is there, that creation itself groans under the burden. Now that does have the sense of like the burden is so big that creation itself is bearing the weight of it and it's like creaking or groaning under the strain. So that's partly there, but it's more that sense of, the, like the verbalization of, oh, the pain and just the sorrow and the, the overwhelmed heart. There's another passage in Romans chapter 8, just a couple verses later in 26, that says, likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weakness, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Uh, the point I want to draw us to is very often we don't even realize how spiritual a moment might be. You hear of news, some terrible thing, you know, could be just someone you've been ministering to who's now suddenly faltering in their faith in your hearts. It's just, oh, I thought they were doing better. And your your uh, depression, that the the pain of hearing that, the the the, re the verbal result of oh, that that's more spiritual than you think. The, the Holy Spirit working within us causes us to understand 
what a tremendous failure that is. How far down that fall is for that person. I mean, think about it, you guys, right? You know, the world and all of its sinfulness. You know, somebody's trying to get sober. And, you know, oh, now they've fallen back into drinking. The world might be like, well, that's too bad. But they don't have the sense of, oh, that's absolutely horrible. You know, here's this person trying to walk with the Lord. Everything that encompasses. It's not just the sobriety. It's all of the, the spiritual struggle that only we understand as believers. The spirit within us hears of that. And we self-identify with that pain and expression of, oh, that's, you know, someone dies, some result of sin. We have an impact or there is an impact upon the believer that the world can't understand. And it is a spiritual thing. You know, what Isaiah is saying, saying about the groaning and the growling and what Paul is saying, uh, you know, to the church in Rome about this internal conflict that's a deeply spiritual thing. When our hearts and our minds and our lives are grieved with what they see around us. I mean, I don't even know how many times I've, I've looked on and, you know, especially as a pastor, watched somebody doing what other people thought of as relatively minor and Years of experience and ministry and the knowledge of the word, I understand with a great clarity what the end result of those circumstances are going to be. Moved deeply by that. The groaning of the Holy Spirit. There's something about the work of the Lord and the way we should be responsive to it, emotionally moved by it. Now, to give us a hope in the midst of that same passage, in verse 15, it continues by saying that the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. We see a similar thing throughout the scripture. The way that there is this sort of search for, is there one that can bring justice? Is there one that can bring forgiveness is there one that can deliver god's grace to humanity we see throughout history certain people sort of serving in that role we see uh, even moses acting as an intercessor right god is grieved with the nation of israel and says to him i'm paraphrasing but basically get out of the way i'm just going to destroy all of these people and we'll just take you and start over and build uh, you know, a nation out of your person. And Moses falls on his face before God and pleads on their behalf. The Holy Spirit in Moses, causing him to have the very heart of God, to intercede and care for and be that uh, deliverer and, uh, you know, mediary between God and man. The uh, struggle that we see here, you know, there's no man, there's no intercessor. We see a similar thing in Revelation. I would ask you to turn there with me, chapter 5. Just keep your bookmark in Isaiah 59. Revelation chapter 5 says, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside 
and on the back sealed with seven seals. Now, there's a huge long sermon with this whole Revelation passage. I personally am convinced that the scroll we see written here is the title deed, and I'm not, you know, such an accomplished scholar that I've come up with this. I've studied, you know, all of the other uh, pastors and commentators work on this, and I agree. This is the title deed to the earth. This scroll that is written inside out, back, and sealed with seven seals. Verse 2 says, Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at the look at it. Um, John's weeping is part of what convinces me this is the title deed to the earth. Um, simple explanation. Romans six sixteen says, "Who will you obey? That's your master." Um, you know whether it's sin leading uh, to death or obedience leading to life. But who you obey, that's your master. Um, God was uh, Adam and Eve's master, and they obeyed Satan in the garden, suddenly making Lucifer the master of the human race. Now you come all the way to Jesus, and he refers to Satan as the god of this world or the god of this age. He's a master over humanity, and that's a very desperate thing to consider, that, that he is the one who has the title deed. Earth. He is the one who has authority over humanity. That is a mournful thought that Satan is going to be the ultimate expression and end of all things. So he's filled with this sorrow, weeps much because no one was found worthy to open the, and read the scroll or to look at it. And verse 5 says, But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Jesus, our Redeemer, you know, no intercessor. Uh, Isaiah 59, verse 15, Then the Lord saw it, and it displeased him, and there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him, and his own righteousness it sustained him. He reaches through. All of the circumstances to provide salvation and to deliver whatever you know history and humanity may create, God can and will overcome it. In verse 17, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak, according to their deeds, according to he will rip, accordingly he will repay fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. The coastlands he will fully repay. Repay he will he shall. Um, so shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. So. A prophetic picture of Jesus, this one who's going to bring salvation through his arm. Uh, the garments you know, of vengeance for clothing, you think of 
what the prophet is saying about the one who comes from Basra, whose garments are stained and uh, you know almost bloody in appearance. And when asked, he says that he's been treading out the winepress of God's wrath, and he's been doing it alone. So this idea of his clothing being in vengeance, clad with zeal as a cloak. You think of Jesus in the temple flipping over the money changer's table, and then you know, even as an explanation, it says they remembered that the zeal for the Lord's house would consume him. So he's certainly clothed with that zeal. And then the repayment for sin or obedience uh, is in his uh, personality and in his conduct for those that uh, have followed him or rejected him. That statement of how his spirit would rise up even when the enemy comes in like a flood and the standard uh, that's uh, lifted up. That's a couple of things about the standard which are interesting. It's certainly the flag of uh, like the tribes or the flag of a company or if you are part of you know, a, a military branch, you have your standard. And you could, you know, if in the battlefield when they would put that up, you would know to collect to that standard. Uh, that becomes the idea of... Um, how you would measure things by, right? We talk about like, uh, you know, uh, the imperial standard or the metric standard. Um, you have different standards for building and code and home. That is within this, that the Lord is going to lift up a banner, you know, a standard, but it's also that which we should measure by, right? You don't, you don't just get to say, oh, there's the Christian flag. I'm with that group. Right? People do that a lot, right? You know, they just think, well, I'm I'm an American, so I must be Christian. I'm not, you know, from Turkey, therefore I'm not Islamic. There's a submission to the authority and the lordship of Jesus Christ that is part of that measurement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fly the standard, but you also have to live by what is put out as the standard and the measurement. So he's going to raise up the standard against them and uh, you know be able to conquer them with his authority 59:20 the redeemer will come to Zion and those who turn from transgression in Jacob says the lord this uh, statement of the salvation that would come uh, only from Israel and through uh, you know Jacob the descendants of uh, Abraham uh, all the way uh, to Jesus, that salvation was going to come through their tribe, through their people. 59.21, as for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them, my spirit who is upon you, and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your descendants, nor from the mouth of your descendants' descendants, says the Lord, from the time, from this time and forevermore. <coughs> this uh, is reflected again when uh, you look back at Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. The Lord gives the commandment to Joshua, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to, to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. And the idea of 
it not departing is the idea that it would always be in your mouth. That when you speak, it would be the Word of God. You know, I've you know, been accused of that by people who, you know, they say it hatefully, but they you know, say things like, Bible, Bible, Jesus, Jesus, just always, it's all you ever want to talk about. You know, why, you know it's, why, why can't it ever be another? Because everything relates to that. So, you know, everything pertaining to life and godliness is contained inside the deity of Jesus Christ. All we need to know is the Word of God, and the Word of God, and the Word of God. That needs to be the thing. You know, whether... <laughs> I worked for a television station years ago. I mean, if they haven't figured it out already and they listen to these recordings, we had this thing where in the morning news we had a little blurb where we would fill up time or, you know, sometimes just stick it in. It was, it was the thought for the day. So, um, you know, I was in the, the newsroom one morning and uh, the producer said this, Anybody have a thought for the day? And a particular story we had just been uh, dealing with caused me to say, yes, a guilty man flees when no one's pursuing him. And the producer was like, hey, that's really cool. And so he just goes ahead and adds that in. And I go about my work. And later he says, hey, where did you get that? I need to, like, tag that. And, I, and now I'm thinking, oh, if I tell him the Bible, like, he is never going to ask me again. You know what I'm saying? So I went... It's an old Hebrew proverb. Straight out of Proverbs. And so that's a Hebrew proverb. He puts that in. Ancient Hebrew proverb. goes up. This turns into every day. Hey, Will, got a thought for the day? Yes, I sure do. <laughs> and we just delivered the word of God as a television station to our community. Just different Bible verses all the time. You know, what our community got while I was... Working at that station, a lot of what's just straight out of Matthew chapter 5 through 7, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. You know, when you're finally getting around to saying things like, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, they're like, hey, isn't that biblical? Yes, but it's just the golden rule. And they're like, okay, golden rule. And off it goes. Let the word of God ever be in your mouth. You know, don't let it depart. Let it be the thing that you fill others' hearts and minds with in the world around you. So consider what the Lord might be doing. In uh, verse 1 of chapter 60, it says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people, but the Lord will arise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to the light, and the kings to the brightness of your rising. What an interesting way to phrase that, the brightness of your rising. So I wonder what it looked like inside that tomb as Jesus was resurrected. I do not support the idea that the Shroud of Turin is most definitely the burial cloth of Christ. I can't support that idea. There's some interesting things about it that lead me to think personally that it probably is, but I can't preach that. I don't know. It might not be at all. 
But one of the things that's very interesting about the Shroud of Turin is that the image that is on that shroud was burned into the fabric by an unknown radiation light source. So, you know, maybe it was the brightness of his rising that burned that image into that cloth. Maybe. Maybe not. Something to think about. You can do your own research on that. But the brightness of his rising certainly did illuminate the hearts and minds of the Gentile world. How do I know? Because there's a few of us sitting here this evening, studying God's word together. It radiated out of the nation of Israel through the mouth of Peter in the house of Cornelius. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And salvation came to that house. And when there was great darkness, spiritual darkness, utter blindness for the Gentile world, Jesus Christ's glory filled our hearts and gave us the salvation, the illumination that we have today. There was also the darkness of the hour of his crucifixion. And there is also the darkness of the hours that are still to come ahead of us in this world. And in the end, it's the, the light of Jesus Christ's resurrection that shines through all of them. So we hold to that, and we share that with the world. 60 verse 4, lift up your eyes all around and see, and they... All gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be nursed at your side. So the gathering to Israel during the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, the gathering of the world and uh, people's hearts to Jesus Christ's authority is a lot of what's being described here. Then you shall... See and become radiant, and your heart shall swell with joy. Now, you might think of that as, you know, an illustration or metaphor, but perhaps there will literally be a radiance about us, like Moses, as he came down from the mountain. There's some who think that we may actually be clothed in light during the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Um, the righteousness of Jesus Christ uh, poured out on us is described as a radiant uh, garment. You think about Jesus Christ and his transfiguration as his garments shown. So there's just something to think about there, that there might be a literal radiance that's being spoken of here in our glorified state uh, with Christ, glorified with him, becoming radiant. Your heart shall swell with joy. Because of the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. So speaking of Israel and the Messiah and his millennial reign and the world bringing their abundance to him uh, as an act of worship, the multitude of camels shall cover your land. The dromedaries of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense. They shall proclaim the praises of the Lord. And all the flocks of Keter shall be gathered together to you. The rams of Naboth shall minister to you. They shall ascend with acceptance on my altar, and I will glorify the house of my glory." Wonderful thought to think that there's a coming day where all of the nations of the world will flock 
to Jesus Christ in Jerusalem and bring their sacrifices and their gifts and their wealth willingly, desirous of that moment. Strong contrast between the way the world hates Jesus Christ and Christianity currently and the willful response that we're seeing here. It's going to be a blessed thing to see the day where the world worships our king. 60 verse 8, Who are these who fly like a cloud and like doves to their roosts? Surely the coastlands shall wait for me, and the ships of Tarshish will come first to bring your sons from afar, their silver and their gold with them, to the name of the Lord your God and your Holy One of Israel, because he has glorified you. Um, certainly the glorification of Jesus Christ, humble servant, rejected by the world, now glorified by God. But in that also, you know, the children of Israel glorified, and then ultimately even the Gentile church glorified with Christ. You know, the justification of all of our faith once Jesus Christ rules and reigns and how, you know, like flying clouds or doves or ships, you know, coming uh, with speed to worship the Lord and bring this wealth to him. The sons of foreigners shall build up your walls and your kings shall minister to you for in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I had mercy on you. Now, certainly, even now, Israel has God's favor, but um, we can clearly look that there was a time where they were in recent history being disciplined, corrected, afflicted by God. And that's now turned and the people are returned to the land and experiencing God's you know, pleasantness and fulfillment. You know, they were struck, but now his favor and mercy upon them. There's still a delicate learning process that they're going through because they're not, as a nation, submitted to Jesus Christ. There, there are certainly people within their nation who are even in very key positions of authority who do you know, follow and worship Jesus Christ. But this is speaking more of that whole national response that's going to be in place during the millennial reign and as the nations uh, come to worship and uh, assist in this. Therefore, your gates shall be open continually. They shall not be shut day or night, that men may bring to you the wealth of the Gentiles and their kings in procession. For the nations and the kingdom which will not serve you shall perish, and those nations shall be utterly Ruined. So it will become a worldwide submission to Jesus Christ's authority. Um, we read of the description of how the Lord will dash to, piece, to pieces the nations who don't submit to him. He'll dash them to pieces with a rod of iron. You know, it does seem to mean specifically and literally that he's going to dash them to pieces with a rod of iron. There will be physical punishment for those who do not submit to the authority of Jesus Christ as he reigns on earth. I can't imagine 
how much rebellion would have to be in the heart and mind of a king or you know a president or a prime minister and his people that they would see Jesus Christ seated upon his throne and think we can take him you know uh, we're not going to submit to this guy who, who does he think he is God of the universe or something that's bound to lead to your destruction the whole remaining world will find themselves you know worshiping the Lord 60 verse 13 the glory of Lebanon shall Come to you, the cypress, the pine, the box tree together. Excuse me. To beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. It, you know, that his the earth is his footstool, as the scripture describes. Also, the sons of those who afflict you shall come bowing to you, and all those who despise you shall fall prostrate. At the soles of your feet, and they shall call you the city of the Lord, Zion, of the Holy One of Israel. That submission to the Lord then results in the submission to his children and to his nations also. It'll be a great time of peace around the earth and fruitfulness and celebration. Uh, 60 verse 15. Whereas... You have been forsaken and hated so that uh, no one went uh, through you. I will make you an eternal excellence, a joy of many generations. There is times in history, but in most recent times, I, I always think of Mark Twain's statement of how he had traveled for many days and he had seen, in his words, Inside Israel, he had seen nothing uh, but desert, rock, and goats through the whole process. Now, I can tell you that uh, having been there back in February and March, I couldn't believe how fertile the ground was there. We went through fields where they tilled it up, and you could just tell the soil is this perfect black brown that you just probably you know throw a seed on top of that and it would take right off it the earth is so beautiful so green in so many areas i mean we're there in winter uh but fruitfulness you know i've talked about the fact you know third largest producer of food in the world it's incredible what the lord has already done inside uh, you know the nation of israel in, in making them uh, such a fruitful thing you know, the, the world that's hated them is going to rejoice in them you know they hated you forsaken you they didn't go through you they didn't you know pass through you thinking that there was anything there worthy of their attention going to become a joy to many generations you shall drink the milk of the gentiles and the milk of the breast of kings you shall know that i the lord am your savior and your redeemer the mighty one of jacob this reference to milk in the sustenance that it's going to come to the nation of israel and the gentiles and those that follow the lord are going to have even from kings the very nurturing and sustenance and substance that is needed you know the We've talked about the fact that, um, you know, the scripture says they're going to beat their swords into plowshares. Uh, 
look at the great fruitfulness of the world that is described during the millennial reign, the food and the grain and the trees and all the the, the world is going to provide. You take the world's military budgets and the world's military scientists, uh, give free them of their sin, and then give them godly wisdom. Right now, one half of the world's scientists are engaged in the study of warfare. How about that? Half of all of the scientists that we produce. They're, they're working in developing weapons and armament and military apparatus and military software. Half of the world's scientists are working on military. Okay, it's a violent world. I'll agree we need that right now. But Jesus Christ is going to be on the throne. Beat your swords into plowshares. What happens when 100% of the world is now concerned with agriculture? When you're focusing, you know, $658 billion of American military budget on just growing crops? It's going to be a different world. You know, I, I suspect that the greater portion of the fruitfulness is going to become from you know the the miraculous work of Jesus Christ and His being on the throne of the earth, but just the fact that we don't have all those people working on war. Now we're all working together on uh, you know caring for the world and making it fruitful, the the milk, the sustenance, the, the nurturing. And uh, even food that will come. He will uh, provide that for us. I'm your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Verse 17, instead of bronze, I will bring gold. Instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. And instead of stones, iron. I will also make your officers peace and your magistrates righteousness. I'll think about that. Your lawyers and your judges are going to be righteous? Wow. You know, your police officers will only be there for peace. We won't have to wonder about the latest investigation because there won't be any. Righteousness, according to the scripture, is going to flood the world like the oceans. That'll be a beautiful time. Violence shall no longer be heard in your land, neither wasting or destruction within your borders, but you shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. Wow. Totally different world than what we're currently experiencing. You know, 92,000 homicides in the United States last year. A woman was sexually assaulted in America every two and a half minutes. It'll be a different world. We will be unconcerned about these things because it will all be dissipated. I always like to point to the uh, Great Awakening in Wales, the Welsh Revival, and how at the end it was so widespread in the entire country that uh, law enforcement agencies were contacting government officials and saying, what do we do? It's been... Literally, you know, almost a year and we haven't had to enforce any crime. No one's breaking the law. 
Everyone is worshiping Jesus Christ. Bars are closing down everywhere because no one goes to the bars to drink. Bar owners are converting their bars to churches in order to just draw people back into their doors. The government issued the order that the police officers should assist the people in the country of Wales in their worship of Jesus Christ by forming singing quartets and traveling around and leading the people in their communities in worship when they were gathered for church. Because they were paid servants of their communities, and this is what their communities were doing. So go lead them in worship. Keep your paycheck. Just go lead people in worship. When the Holy Spirit changes, I'm not talking about churches making a plan and you know scheduling a revival and setting up a tent and trying you know trying to imitate the work of the Lord. When the Holy Spirit works, literally can change the whole world. That they would all worship together. They would all come to places where previously you know, it wasn't anything that was holy. Now everyone's worshiping and everyone is giving to the Lord. We'll close 60 verse 19, these last few verses. See God, uh, the glory of his people. The sun shall no longer be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give light to you. But the Lord will be to you an everlasting light. And your God, your glory, your sun shall no longer go down, nor shall your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light. The days of your mourning shall be ended. Also, your people shall be righteous. They shall inherit the land forever. The branch of my planting, the working of my hands, that I may be glorified. A little one shall become a thousand, and a small one a strong nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it. In its time. So, um, when you're looking at the measurements of um, heaven and you see 12,000 miles uh, square, cubed, that is on earth. Earth has to be a different place than it is currently to even accept heaven on it. It's not big enough currently. Read the end of the book and you see he creates a new heaven and a new earth and even says the old heaven, the old earth had passed away and the new heaven and the new earth had no seas within it. I've said to you many, many times before as a church, right? You hear this thing about population problem, a world's overpopulated. You can still take all of the world's population, put it inside Texas and give everyone 1,628 square feet of their own. We do not have a population problem. We do have some management issues and we need to, you know, spread out a little bit. You can't put, you know, massive portions. How about this, you guys? Uh, Mount Desert Island, Acadia National Park, right? 10 miles wide, 16 miles long. 10,500 year-round residents on that island. Manhattan, New York, two miles wide, 16 miles long. Four million people, right? We don't have a population problem. We just got to all stop hanging out in the same place. 
stacking everybody up to the sky and letting everybody have 1.5 automobiles in town. You know, you've driven through Ohio. There's wide open expanses of nothing but cornfield. For hours, you can experience this. The world's a big place currently. What happens when you have this new creation and new heaven on the earth and the Lord illuminates the whole world with his presence and takes a little one and makes a great nation out of them? Oh, no, we do this too many times. We're going to have you know a population problem. No, we're not. It's going to be a bigger place and the king of the universe is going to be on the throne making sure that it's handled and managed properly. This is going to... Cities, you guys, cities are not evil. Cities are not something the Lord hates, right? He has his city on its way to us. It's the wickedness, right, on every level. And we just read, he's going to purge that all out. It's going to be gone. This is a magnificent presentation that's being presented to us through the prophet of what lies ahead. Go from the darkness of what was being described and their failure and how, oh, we're fasting, but they're really partying and enjoying themselves to, I'm going to just straighten everything out. I've left it to you guys long enough with my strong arm. I'm going to fix everything the Lord is saying. And then that last statement, I just want to add this to it because this is not, again, just some illustration. This is a literal thing the Lord is doing and is going to do. Revelation 21, verse 23, just to close. Speaking of that city in heaven, that city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. That, that'll be an amazing thing to come to the place where literally all that we have need of is emanating from Jesus Christ. That, that his presence is producing life in all of us, in the world around us, and each one of us. So something to look forward to in his great fulfillment of all things. So we'll stand and pray, and next week we'll pick up with chapter 61. Closing in on the end. Father, I thank you for your word. I pray that you would fill each of us with your spirit. Give us the strength to live by what we've read here. That we would be submitted to you and your authority and your lordship in our lives. Minister to us. Watch over us. Guide us until we're together again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.